For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I can hear you okay, but I'm not seeing myself too well. Wait, is it? Oh, I got the camera reversed. That's why. That's so stupid. All right. You're can officially you a dad. Do I, do I look fuzzy or do I look all right? No, you look good. Okay, good. Oh, man, that was that was perfect. <laughs> I work in IT, by the way. <laughs> um. Okay, so okay, so tell me, so you were you were diagnosed with, diagnosed with COVID like in the last week, right? Yeah, yeah. So I got um, I got COVID at work. Uh, I'm an ER nurse. Um, yeah. We've been seeing a lot of it in my area, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I had some symptoms. I was like real tired all day, but I sleep terribly, so I didn't really think too much of it. And then as I was getting ready for work, we sat down for dinner. Um, I work nights, so sat down for dinner. I couldn't taste anything, and uh, it just sort of struck me. So. I don't know. I, I got it. I had like a day of like feeling really crappy, fluey, and I've been sort of on the uphill ever since. It's been like day five now. And I'm pretty much fine. That's great, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, thank you. Me too. <laughs> it's kind of weird. it's weird the way it works. Where like some people it's like a death sentence, and some people it's like yeah, it was kind of a bad cold. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think if you're if you're relatively healthy and young, you're far less likely to have those like terrible circumstances but i don't know man it's one of those things i'm just fortunate that i'm doing all right the kids are fine yeah that's awesome man okay so speaking of your kids i want to get this on the record because i never i don't think we ever talked about this in the podcast the, yeah. the way your last kid was born can you like tell me that story yeah yeah so really briefly um you know as i said i work nights and i'm a nurse so i was sleeping at about 3 p.m after having watched my my older son all day my wife nine months pregnant takes my son to the dining hall because we live at a boarding school. And um, so she went to dining hall around five, like five thirty. she had a contraction. Um, she had another one at like five forty-five, and then told our friend uh, that she was, you know, she had to get going and come get me. So they started walking back to the house. It's about 200 yards and she made it about halfway and uh, had a third contraction and felt like she had to push. So she, uh, told my friend and uh, she ran through the house, um, you know, burst through my bedroom door and told me I had to hurry up and come out quick. And uh, I was out there two minutes later to watch my friend catching the baby. Uh, she had, she was in labor for like 20 minutes. It's crazy. And this was on the sidewalk. <laughs> on, on the sidewalk outside our house. Yeah. But you saved like a lot of money, right? <laughs> Having no, a baby on the sidewalk. No, we didn't. No, we, uh, no, they, they, uh, you know, they charge you for the stay and we were ready to get out of there basically like an hour later. And uh, they had to charge us for an ambulance. I was trying to convince my wife to just go by car, um, yeah. but she didn't want, she was still attached. So she didn't really want to do that, uh, which is reasonable. Um, so we had to pay for the ambulance. We had to pay for like the stay there in the hospital. I mean, it, it worked out, um, but yeah, it was still a bunch of money. That's crazy. Yeah. Cause I mean, 
what I expected would happen if you had a baby on the sidewalk is you just cut the cord yourself, bring the baby in, no birth certificate, no social security number, raise it off the grid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's certainly an option. And I have a, a, a sovereign citizen family member who would have preferred that. But um, yeah, we did the whole thing. You know, the, the one thing I was really mad about, and I'm sorry, we haven't actually gotten into this, but uh, this will probably piss a bunch of people off. Um, they wouldn't put my hometown on the birth certificate. They put the town that the placenta was delivered in, which is where the hospital was. Which okay. really bothered me. My wife had to have a baby on the sidewalk and we couldn't even have like an official record of that. Um, uh-huh. But whatever, it's all good. <laughs> baby's, baby's there and healthy. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was fine. It's was, it was wild. Um, okay. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. It was really cool. It was really cool. I was on an ambulance for seven years before I started ER nursing and I never saw a live birth except in nursing school. So all the years that I was hoping to get a live birth and I get it by accident outside. <laughs> By, yeah. by my wife. Um, all right. All right. Well, okay. So I know with Instagram, we've got like an hour, right? Like it cuts off automatically. Yeah. But I mean, we can like do another one or whatever if we're still going. Yeah. Because we always try to do that. But I know I'm, we probably lose a few people doing that. If we can, let's, let's try to see if we can cram it in. Um, so we, we, what the topic we we're wanting to talk about was kind of comparing and contrasting like the libertarian notion of human rights from like the Christian idea of being a good Samaritan and, you know, kind of Christian duties and responsibilities. Um, and luckily it's been a slow news week, so we can get right into that. We don't have to talk about anything else, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So, so here, here was my idea then. Um, Cause I, we want to talk about that thing, but if I were to tentatively title uh, this discussion, I might call it something like, uh, babies and babies on the sidewalk and babies on Capitol Hill. <laughs> babies everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Babies. Everywhere. So, <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, what do you think about like? Because here's what's crazy to me. Like, I've been telling people for like the last like year um, that the Trumpers were just going to basically talk a lot and not do anything because that was pretty consistently what was going on. I mean, I, I didn't say like it was impossible, but I was, it was just kind of like, it kind of really seems like they're just going to keep talking, all, you know, all the stuff about their guns and their rights. And then all they're going to do is, you know, try to trigger the libs and they're not going to, they're literally not going to do anything. And like for the last year, it's been everybody on the left who's been, you know, setting stuff on fire and destroying property. Um, and then sort of like basically at zero hour, like the last minute they could really act up <laughs> under a Trump presidency, they, it all just sort of came to a head. And, um, I mean, wait, what, what do you think, man? What, 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 what happened? Um, so what do I think? I think first of all, um, the, the idea of like the right being, you know, impotent has always been the story. That's, that's not new, right? They've always been a lot of like bluster and complaining and that's sort of the nature of being a reactionary political force. Um, mm-hmm. I think you sit on your lazy board and you gesticulated at Fox News. Right. Yeah. And and you don't ever frame the debate yourselves. And I think, um, you know, this has been a big interest of mine since I read Michael Malice's book, The New Right, uh, which I know I've talked a bunch about here. Mm -hmm. But um, the New Right's intellectual energy is to seize the debate and frame it for themselves. So no longer will the right be. 
you know, the reactionaries. They want to be the neo-reactionaries. Um, so I don't know that I would consider myself part of that, but I, I have a lot um, of sympathy for it. Now, the riots, I think, are primarily dumb, ineffective, but fascinating. I mean, it's really hard to tell if it was pre-planned or if this was um, sort of just like an organic outgrowth of mob mentality. But I think ultimately it, it showed that like the right was raising the stakes. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how else to think about it because there's like these competing visions of what happened. Um, the people that are heavy breathing that it was a coup. There's the, the Trump people who think that they actually were going to stop this deal, which is an absurdity all uh, on its own. And then there's what actually happened, which seems to be more or less that um, a bunch of like MAGA normies and some probable like representatives of the true new right or like the intellectual side of the new right actually burst into the, the Congress uh, at Capitol Hill and like made a mockery of it. They didn't, they didn't really like, they, you know, some people stole some things and destroyed some things. They didn't like, they weren't toting guns. They weren't like trying to signal a coup. They weren't trying to like do anything but be disruptive. And I think that that sort of like trolling mockery is precisely what the new right is aim is. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, I don't... It's, it's kind of hard to tell, because, I mean, like, on the surface, it looks like political theater. Like, it looks like guerrilla theater. Like, um, you know, like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and, and the Yippies, um, you know, surrounding the Pentagon and uh, exercising the demons and trying to make it levitate kind of stuff, right? But it does seem like at least there were people there who thought that they were beginning an insurrection, that they were starting the revolution. Right. Um, well, the, the Q element complicates things, and it, it also serves as a um a convenient straw man that like these are all just like absolute nut job conspiracy weirdos who um you know are easily inflamed by trump and it's all trump's fault that he you know i i think trump actually you know absolutely does have some responsibility here but i also i don't think that people flying in from all over the country who were wearing shirts saying civil war um, with like the, the COD font, you know, Call of Duty font on their t-shirts. I don't think that those people had, A, any actual um, desire to start a civil war, but B, are all that informed by Donald Trump. Um, and you can tell that when he's telling everyone to go home and, you know, concedes. And a lot of these people don't accept that. They don't go home um, and they don't accept his concession. They don't care about the power or the, the leadership. They care about rebuking the cathedral maybe I, I i i think it's also possible that they didn't take him seriously i mean i think that maybe they i mean because if you listen to his kind of go home speech it was a lot of you know i love you you're beautiful um you know i want to cradle you in my arms and, and kiss all your boo-boos um but then he sort of also goes yeah but you know you really ought to go home <laughs> i don't know i i think it's possible that I mean, there's this kind of weird thing that happens with Trump supporters. It's kind of like um, the way like people who have like fundamentalist religious ideas have to sort of like live with these sort of ideas and tension. And so like they sort of have to believe all of these things about Trump that don't really, that all sort of contradict. And so then like whenever he says something stupid or wrong, they have to sort of 
rationalize it in some way. And then by the end, by the, by the time they've done that with like 150 different things, um, it's like, you can't really get like a, like a, like a comprehensive systematic viewpoint from them about what their politics are or who Trump is. Um, and, and so I, I don't know, it, it's, it's hard for me to know for sure. I, I do think though, there's definitely an element of theater behind, you know, the, the guy with the headdress coming in. And so, but yeah, what, what I will say at the very least is I think the people on the right who have kind of um, tolerated Trump and kissed his butt <laughs> um, certainly weren't happy about what happened. And I do think it's a little bit of a chickens coming home to roost thing. I mean, I think that they have kind of um, encouraged Trump and these types of people. And then, you know, next thing you know, they're, they're crashing into the, into the Capitol building and there, and then the, these uh, congressmen are having to hide downstairs in the basement. Um, but they being who, the New York times. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of specifically like the, uh, the conservative, like Republican politicians who have, who've not really wanted to stand up to Trump and have kind of encouraged people to kind of buy into kind of tried to make the conspiracy theories seem legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at like what Ted Cruz says or, or the statement that Ted Cruz and others signed, before this all happened, I mean, Ted Cruz is a lawyer. He's not an idiot. He didn't say um, the election's been stolen. He said there is a, um, unprecedented rumors or un unprecedented allegations of um, voter fraud. And, and, and what he's basically saying is we should stop the whole process just because people don't believe it. And I mean, you, you can say something about like wanting to inspire confidence in the system, but at the end of the day, what he's really saying is it doesn't matter what reality is we have to sort of let these people get their way to some extent because they, they're ignorant. <laughs> and yeah, well, you know. on the flip side though, I've listened, I listened to a lot of voices on this and I haven't done like deep dives on the, the research about the election. But um, my understanding is that like, there really has been zero critical eye given to this because it was immediately written off as conspiratorial, which maybe it is. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, and I don't care because um, Curtis Yarvin put it, uh, I think, most brilliantly, like, even if Biden stole it, he stole it fair and square. So, like, you know, I, I don't put I said this to you before. I don't put like the ability to sway an election past anybody. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't have election observers if it was some sterile, clean, impossible to to sway process. But at the at the same time, like. I don't care who won or who lost and I don't care if it was stolen from Trump because that's what the old order was always trying to do and would do eventually. Um, but Trump is again, I think crucially beside the point and um, you know, for the stop the steal stuff, I don't even know that that was really the point. I think that for a lot of these people, they're animated by an opposition to the left and over the course of the last 10 months with the lockdowns and the riots and you know, the, the preceding, four years of a Trump um, presidency where he was, you know, often correctly, but nevertheless, like constantly daily, um, you know, dragged by the, by the mainstream press and, and by the establishment. Um, this is a group of people who I think were trying to demonstrate a show of force and they were trying to galvanize their wills. And, um, you know, this is the, their self-described, long-suffering silent majority right they've been battling the slings and arrows of the left and yada 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 so I, i'm not surprised that we had this outgrowth w what i'm more surprised about is the videos that are surfacing of like 
cops opening gates and like standing aside as they walk through um, and yeah. not for a conspiracy, but because like, what is the circumstance where like this theater, just as you said, is like being given the red carpet? Why, why are they able to like run into Capitol Hill? And, and clearly that's got to be the oddest coup of all time. If the sitting powers are like standing aside as they, as they seize control. So I've, I've been increasingly suspicious of these narratives um, that assume like kind of an input output type thing where like, well, if they were black, it would have went this way. If they were white, it would have went this way. But I think if you compare, at least in this regard, black lives matter uh, rallies with what happened a couple of days ago. Um, the difference is that the people from black lives matter, um, which, you know, it's, it's not, It'd be tough. I don't know. I'm not sure what the composition of the races of people at a black, the average Black Lives Matter rally, but it's not like they're all black people. Uh, there's a lot of white white kids there too. Um, but I think ultimately what they're doing is they're criticizing police. You know, they're there in opposition to what police are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think the people, the MAGAs, uh, uh, you know, MAGA world is, um, you know, not to use too too critical sounding word, but but they're basically bootlickers. I mean, they 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 kind of make excuses for police all the time and, and sort of, uh, you know, they are, um, police are, ha- have a divinity that's just below soldiers for, you know, people on, people in, in Trump world, you know, right. and people on the right generally in a lot of cases. And I think that's primarily the difference. I think police saw these people as really on their side. Um, and they don't see the people at BLM that way. Well, but, but they didn't, they, uh, I don't think they were treated any differently except that, in, in one case, Parks Police is defending the Capitol and they don't really have a lot of vested interest in the Capitol except like to do what they're told to do. And the, in uh, evidently some of that case was to just stand in line and like they weren't destroying things or like really rioting. It started to get a little bit, I mean, I've seen pretty limited video, but from what I've seen, it, it grew to a fever pitch. They're pushing against the police line. The police line sort of just like folds and then they mm-hmm. just kind of give them free reign. Um, but they didn't torch the place. And um, I think conversely, the conversation about BLM is a anti-cop. So you're already going to have the cops a little bit more um, like postured against them, but, but B they're defending a city that they work in or have worked in for long periods of time and probably live in or around. And so they have a little bit more like actual vested interest in what's going on and the cities are being destroyed. Like I I don't, I've been, I have a pretty nuanced view of, of all of, what happened post George Floyd, but like there is a substantial difference between what happened at Capitol Hill and what happened at these riots. Um, And I think both are based on uh, really spurious claims, but at least Black Lives Matter had George Floyd's video to look at. I mean, I don't think that Stop the Steal has a whole lot to to rest on, but. Yeah, I I think BLM is is rooted more in reality. If you want to talk about just these kind of examples of police violence, and yeah, but, but there's all, but it's, it's kind of complicated too, right? Because you have for every George Floyd, you have at least, um, you know, one Michael Brown. And, and I think Michael Brown was one of those um, names that really made BLM what they are. And people kind of ran with it and it turned out to not necessarily be reality, which is, is also the case, of course, with Stop the Steal. But yeah, I agree with you that BLM is, has, I think is rooted in more, then stop the steal. Like there, there, there's more there. Um, 
There's, of course, also these... Also, the overarching... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just saying, but there, there are, of course, these kind of Marxist narratives and solutions that BLM tends to appeal to um, that are not, you know, quite so rooted in reality. But at the very least, yeah, there, there's police violence. And, you know, oftentimes the, those at the end of it are, are people of color. So that does mean that there's, there's some truth, at least there. Yeah, I, I think another big thing is like it's BLM has become a, a cultural movement. It's accepted by every corporate boardroom and every yeah. sensible politician and every thought leader and every university and every pundit. Um, whereas like stop the steal has always been this fringe sort of like laughing stock. Um, and so they can't I can't even get Walmart behind it. <laughs> right. I don't think that they, I don't think that they, um, like possessed the heft to really give them a good idea of what they were going to be facing when so many people turned out. So maybe that was part of it too. Like BLM, every city knows like, okay, better board up the city before the election because who knows what's going to happen with these like roving hordes um yeah. so i don't know it's it's an interesting moment i don't think that it's really going to mean all that much substantial and i think if anything it's been sort of like co-opted to further like further try like for conservatives to disabuse themselves of trump and for like the the cathedral to continue to hammer Trump and get headlines. Um, but I don't think that like it's going to really carry anything. I think the undercurrent of the intellectual right who is trying to reframe the debate and, and seize it, I think that whether this had anything to do with them or not, they are going to continue on the same course, which is like making a mockery of everything that's happening and taking control of the debate in any way that they can. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, at some point Trump goes away, but I, I do think this is kind of what we've seen over the last year should at least give us pause about kind of the direction our country is going in and sort of our sense of, of division. Um, and, and even something we talk about division, but the one thing that, that all these groups seem to have in common is that on some level, they respect violence and especially state violence, as long as it's on their side. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's what's so disconcerting is you basically have these, um, I mean, I guess I, it, it seems weird to call them zealots because we're considered the radicals, like libertarians like us are considered the radicals because we don't believe in initiating violence. Um, but, but like to basically have these zealots who, who believe in using, uh, using violence to back up their ideology and they're both vying for control of, um, not just you know not just the presidency but also the Congress and and the and the Supreme Court and so that's I think really disconcerting and 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 I guess too what, what, one thing coming from a Christian perspective that I found really illustrates this point is the way that um, sort of sacred language was invoked to describe um, um, what was happening uh, yeah on Capitol Hill where it was like uh, you know the, the I'm trying to think of some of the, the words, like the, kind of the, the, the halls of Congress being sacred and, oh, you know, this cathedral of democracy and so on and so forth. And, um, and you know, I, I don't think that the halls of Congress are sacred. Even when I'm, you know, the most susceptible because I've just watched Mr. Smith goes to Washington, I, I still don't, I still don't buy that, you know, but I, at the same time, I, um, I appreciate the fact that the American system of government was, you know, far and away 
at least uh, theoretically, and, and as it was written in the Constitution, so much better than most everything that had come before it. And I, I am concerned about moving in the wrong direction, which is what I think um, the, you know, the Trumpers were essentially trying to do and also what people on the left are trying to do for the most part, um, it's making it making it even worse. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. What's that? I think so much of the language, I think so much of the language too is, um, you know, I kind of imagine there's like these two competing poles of, of political philosophy left and right. And they're almost meaningless to like actually identify anyone. And then you start to like branch out into the various subsets of these ideologies. And um, I think what possess the vast majority of both sides is a very unnuanced, um, unsophisticated viewpoint of the world that's like sort of just handed out to them from like the MSNBC and Fox mm -hmm. uh, pundits respectively. And so much of the time, and then you have the, the even weirder fringes like Q and like the black block Maoists and those sorts of different camps let the broad left and right target just one of those fringe groups or one fringe, like one, one position that they take and vilify the entire group by straw man. And so for example, we were watching people talking about, and I, I'm tying this back only because Aaron had said something that I wanted to sort of like passively address at the same time. Um, like we're talking about black lives matter and a, a seemingly Q motivated Capitol Hill protest riot invasion whatever you want to call it um and they're talking as if those two groups are polar opposites and represent the um opposing side of the same idea and they clearly don't um and to try to say that q people are are the voice that's been condemning violence over the last 10 months or eight months since George Floyd. I don't think that that's really like a sufficient, like that's a straw man. They really aren't even concerned with that. Their whole thing is that Trump is going to break up some like global pedophile conspiracy and free us of all of our debt, like Jubilee. Um, so it becomes this like convenient left, right thing just to win like a couple of points for your house it at Hogwarts and it and it really I think starts to inform people who are just getting their information from their newsfeed that like oh man look at how perverse the other side is how unfair and maligned my side is and they never really have to identify with the criticisms because there's so many straw mans um, so I, I think like in the case of the Black Lives Matter protests being treated differently I think there's sub substantive um, substantial reason why, you know, police would have responded differently to like a given Black Lives Matter protest that resulted in more violence than say um, what happened at Capitol Hill. But it's not to excuse either or to say that like, sure. you know, I, again, I, I just well, find all this stuff so also, muddy. I was gonna say we're also comparing um, one MAGA protest with, you know, hundreds of BLM and Antifa protests. And it's not the case that every BLM protest went um, you know, it was filled with like police brutality. And if you look at what was happening to a large degree in Portland, police were basically standing back and were told to be, just sort of let them do what they wanted to do. They were, they um, were routed by, by the people that set up the uh, autonomous zone, routed. 
like sure oh yeah and you have autonomous in seattle as well right right like retreated and and there's still those autonomous zones from my understanding they they there are still small pockets of autonomous zones right now so when we talk about like black lives matter if if you want to use that giant umbrella term to represent things like these autonomous zones developed by like you know communists or whomever um then i i don't think it's fair to say that like the police were unfairly uh brutalizing them when they're still conducting business as normal 10 months later yeah there was a a comment as we were talking um actually a couple comments about the kind of the difference of like sort of the nonviolent approach of Jesus versus kind of what we are seeing from the status left and right. And um, it seems to me that the right um, tends to, they don't want to really jettison Jesus for the most part, but they want to sort of have this sort of competing idol <laughs> that they want to associate with Jesus. Whereas the left is always, I think, kind of looking for kind of a new Jesus because I think they, they see themselves, um, you know, progressivism is about this idea of moving forward to this, um, you know, promised land in a lot of ways. And so you'll see them kind of stealing some of that religious language. And um, uh, there's an article I, I'm, I'm wanting to write, I need to write it sooner rather than later, um, about uh, Kamala Harris. Did I say it right? I, sometimes, I, I hear her name so many different ways that I, I worry I'm going to say it wrong. Okay. So um, she um, was in trouble recently because she told the story about when she was uh, a little girl still in a um, stroller and how she um, yes. uh, had fell off, fallen out of her stroller at, at this March and her parents didn't realize it. And she, uh, they came back for her sometime later and, you know, asked if she was okay, if she wanted anything. And she said she wanted freedom. And <laughs> um, that's the story she tells. Now people were quick to point out that there's a similar story that Martin Luther King told in an interview um, about uh, an eight or nine year old girl. So an older girl, was at a march and was asked by police what she wanted. And she said, feed them. Um, but what is interesting to me, and this is, I think, because nobody reads the Bible anymore, is that there's another story. So, so let's say that she's lifted this story. I, I have a hard time believing it's true, but I'm also open to, you know, it's possible, I guess. Um, if she stole part of it from this Martin Luther King interview, it's almost certain that she stole the other part from uh, the gospels where there's this one story about Jesus when he's 12 years old and uh, his parents take him to Jerusalem to the temple and um, he gets left behind. And so they're in this caravan for like a day and they realize he's not there and they go back to get him. And, you know, they said, you know, why would you do this to us? We were worried sick, whatever. And he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house or about my father's business. And essentially what I mean, Kamala Harris is doing is she's like created this sort of infancy gospel for herself. Um, or if like, you look at like some of these like kind of later, like Gnostic and infancy gospels of Jesus, where he like, uh, you know, speaks from the manger. And <laughs> but it's this idea that, you know, young, young Kamala was, um, was, was, you know, was, was so made for this, this moment and for civil rights and for freedom and justice that even at such a young age, she, you know, she spoke these, these wise words. Um, I think kind of goes into this. I think it really fits in with this notion that the left has of themselves as kind of a messianic religious movement sometimes, but anyway, that's actually their origin. They, yeah. They come from the American Protestant church. The uh, like pr progressivism as a whole was in response to like fundamental fundamentalist European Christians. And they have since, you know, become a hyper secular movement, but their origins the American Protestant church 
didn't go anywhere. Um, that that is the American Protestant Church that served in opposition to um, to the fundamentalists of Europe that you know had had come over here. Um, and there's this really interesting history uh, that, that again Curtis Yarvin talks about in um, an open letter to a progressive mind or a open letter to an open-minded progressive. And um, I think it's in chapter nine that he does the, like um, the whole, the whole sort of exp explanation of like this church as progressivism. And then why it is in fact, the cathedral that he calls it is because that is what progressivism is, is this sort of overarching theology without a God. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've, um, I'd like to learn a bit more about what, what kind of you were talking about there about that, um, the history connection. I do know that, I mean, at one point, um, the Democratic Party, um, I mean, if you look at like uh, William Jennings Bryan, who was, um, uh, you know, ran for president three times and, you know, could have gotten it. And he was very much associated with um, the Democratic cause and progressivism. And he was a fundamentalist. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, there, there are definitely connections there between I mean, at one point, essentially, um, Christianity was, in, in, in large sense, a uh, had, had connections with progressivism. If you look at um, a lot of the movements in the 19th century, and that, that really kind of that shifts once um, uh, once the Scopes Monkey trial happens, and then you sort of have this sort of pulling away from politics, and then you know once you have um, um, Falwell and the, and the religious right, everything kind of shifts in the other direction, but. Um, okay. So I think we've, unless there's something else you want to talk about, I think we've covered the, a lot of the news stuff. Do you want to start? Yeah, I know. I could do. But I want to make sure that we, we try to cover the basic stuff of the, uh, the main thing we want to talk about before the time runs out on us. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So, okay. So the basic idea, I think what we were kind of talking about wanting to do was talking about, um, um, you know, negative rights, this idea of what human rights are. And, and I think part of it is you can make um, libertarianism into a kind of religion, I think, and you can take its values and supplant Christianity, just I guess we're talking about the left does and the right does as well. And so what I guess I wanted to talk about was the value of this notion of negative rights, even though it doesn't match up with Christian values. And, and I guess why, you know, why one is useful in one context and another is useful in another context. So if you want, what I could do is I could kind of just start talking because I've got some notes um, that will kind of lead me. Or or if you want to say something, I don't know how you want to do it. but Yeah, well, um, that's cool. Uh, so the, the idea when you when you first posed it to me, I was actually having a hard time understanding what the connection was. Because in my mind, and I think for someone who would describe themselves as like a libertarian Christian or as an anti-state Christian broadly, they would, mm -hmm. they would, I think, rightly say that however you want to form your government in your, you know, ideal or most pragmatic society is irrespective of your faith and not because it doesn't consider it, but because I think everybody, even absolute authoritarians would argue that they're trying to foster freedom and independence and the opportunities for individuals and yada, yada, yada. So for me, the uh, juxtaposition between my preferred form of government and what the divine command for a Christian life is are very different in one or I guess several, but like one really important way, which is that um, 
you know, when, when we're trying to develop a government that's sufficiently limited, we're saying that like we want to foster a radical individual liberty so that we can have, you know, peace and cooperation and innovation or whatever. Um, but it's a means to an end, whereas a Christian life is an end in itself. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, the enforcement of rights is is an important question in all of that. But it's so, like if if I were living in the Soviet Union um, at its most brutal, I would still be trying to live the same individual life and conduct myself in the same way as best as possible, certainly yeah. morally. Um, and so, you know, the form of government is an act of like pragmatic dissipation of power. The other one is divide, divinely inspired sort of like yeah. code of ethics. Good. So the notion of rights, I mean, I think implies a kind of divine providence or divine plan. Um, you know, humans are valuable. Humans are made of the image of God, something to that effect. And so it, within this notion of negative rights, you have a kind of a, some kind of a religious underpinning, but you also have, um, I think within the concept of like, you know, libertarian notions of like non-aggression or, you know, negative rights generally, this idea to, to be clear. So negative rights are, um, basically that what you owe to people is to leave them alone. You know, at minimum, um, um, you know, positive rights would be something like insurance, you know, health insurance that we have to, we, we are obligated to pay for someone else's health insurance. They have a right to it. So it looks like I lost. Um, he's checked out for the moment that um, I do think it's important to recognize as far as the rights go that um, I don't think you need a uh, a Christian underpinning or uh, an inherent value of human life to set um, the parameters for what you imagine is the appropriate government. And so, um, you know, I think where he's going is important, but um, the nature of rights versus the, uh, you must have logged off. Um, the nature of rights and uh, positive negative rights in that debate, I think can be completely disconnected from, from a faith-based um, sort of conduct for life. Um, here we go. We got them back. My connection is worse now. You there, Cody? Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Cool. All right. There we are again. Yeah. So, yeah, when we can talk, we we don't have to appeal to a religious underpinning, but I think, um, I think if you don't have a notion of human beings as being valuable, I think it's hard to uh, develop an ideology of rights. I think it kind of, it's not really built on anything. It's kind of hanging in midair. So I do think that there is at least a shared, um, you know, there's some kind of a commonality there in the way, at the very least, that negative rights have been um, um, expressed in the past, um, that we are made by our creator with an inalienable rights. That seems so, so that on one, line, on one hand, you have this idea of you know, you're kind of obligated to leave people alone, um, and that comes from God. Um, but then within Christianity, you have this, like, uh, Good Samaritan kind of thing, where we actually ought to do more than just leave people alone. So um, I, I've been kind of turning around in my head whether um, there's any kind of inherent contradiction here. And um, the way I've kind of thought about it is that essentially, you know, if, if we go back to a state of nature, 
the reality is that most of us are going to die, <laughs> um, especially if we don't pull our resources and organize together for protection and so on and so forth. And so humans are naturally going to organize together because they want to um, not die. <laughs> and then I think there's this question of, well, what is it that we really owe each other? Uh, and at the minimum, it's to not hurt each other, molest each other, kill each other, steal each other's stuff. And so I think that this idea of respecting human life, the equal humanity of others, um, entails obviously at least negative rights. Now, another way to describe negative rights would be what's called the silver rule. So we know the golden rule is Jesus's um, injunction to, um, to, to um, uh, treat others the way that you want to be treated, to do unto others how you would have them do unto you. Where, but the silver rule is a little bit different. It's the idea that you shouldn't do to others what you don't want done to you. Uh, so it has, a, of course, a negative force to it. And so I think when we talk about negative rights, we're talking about this silver rule. Uh, don't aggress, don't steal, don't kill, don't initiate force of any kind. And I think that this is the principle that ought to regulate what government does. I mean, government is just people organized together um, for protection and for everybody's best interests. And so to have a government that can come in and steal and kill whenever they want to because they are a legitimate um, authority um, undermines this notion of negative rights because government is just people. Well, so, And I think the other important distinction is the idea of describing the descriptive nature of positive negative rights and the formulation of a government versus the prescriptive lifestyle for a Christian. And so one is voluntary. Um, this is how you should conduct yourself if you want to live within the confines of what God has set out for you. And one is this, this organ of power is got to have limitations. What is it that we want to constrain it with? And so, you know, even, even under the terms of, of trying to like superimpose that Christian life onto a government, I think it's, it's sort of a, a fool's errand because that's not really the purpose. And I think you're kind of accepting that progressive presupposition that government is the only arbiter of success. And so we need the government to provide health care or we won't have health care. And um, I, I just, I reject that fully, you know. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know if that, like, yeah. No, 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 yeah, 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 I agree with that. I, I think what, what, I'm, what I'm getting at, though, is that under a um, kind of a libertarian philosophy of negative rights or the silver, silver rule, um, it's it's kind of neutral on subjects of like, um, should you give charity? Should you go out of your way to help others? Should you, um, you know, join some kind of a, um, uh, what do you call it? A, a benevolent society or something like that, or any of that stuff. It's really just, if you leave people alone, you're meeting your obligations. And I think Christianity goes further than that. And, and part of why you can't initiate Christianity into the state, I uh, can't build a state on Christianity is because, um, I think even within Christianity itself, there's no sense that you should use violence against people who aren't Christian enough, right? Um, Christian, so um, Christians will say things like, you know, you should help your neighbor, you should do what you can to take care of people who are, you know, that you're able to help, you know? But they're not, no, no Christian is going to say, that guy didn't do enough, he needs to go to jail. You know, there, there's no sense that violence um, against people who, you know, don't do more than their, um, the negative right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that neutrality is, is, um, kind of precisely what I was driving at. And I yeah. think 
if if you're liberty minded or or you know a small government type person your whole idea is to turn it into like as sterile and neutral uh, a body as possible and so it's it's not to exclude any sort of like goodness or behavior but just to say that it doesn't have to be codified it can just it's up to the individual or you know communities to to sort out um and i think that that poses all its own difficult problems but um, you know, when I'm talking to like a leftist Christian, one of the very first things I try to make the point of is like, we can't replace the provision of God with the provision of the state. And so if you're mm-hmm. imagining that like a libertarian government wouldn't be sufficiently um, equitable or um, benevolent, that's true. Either would a giant bureaucratic state or one who even espouses all of these things we've seen all of these various examples in in, you know different degrees and none of them tend to work out to be um you know the new the new garden of eden so um Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think decoupling the state from human interaction is like one of the first steps i constantly try to make when i'm talking to people like we've we've come to a point in Western society where we take for granted that like, you know, food stamps will be there if you're, if you're in trouble or welfare or, um, you know, the, the military or police or whatever. And all of those things are all well and good. But, but my point is, is like, there are other alternatives to every single government program, except maybe like the Manhattan project. So like, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I would distinguish the state from the government in the sense that I think the state is a type of government, right? I mean, I think any any time where humans get together and organize, uh, even in, even informally, you have a kind of government. And so I think there's lots of different ways that we could do that, right? Also, I think that's an important thing, like definitionally. So the state is is the is the framework for power. And then mm-hmm. the government, as far as I ever use the term, is the power wielding organ of that thing. So the state is a machine that you could very well turn into, you know, a fiat or you could grow it exponentially. But whoever is actually driving the thing is the government. Um, the state yeah, so is the collection of those people. Yeah, that, that, that's one way to look at it. But I think you can also talk about government in the sense of like voluntary bodies, like churches have forms of government, right? Um, they, but they, they don't, they don't, um, they don't initiate force, but they, but they have a kind of government. No, they have a kind of hierarchy. I think a government necessarily <laughs> includes like an involuntary, um, an involuntary or threatening of coercion or violence sort of like enforcement arm. Well, so <laughs> I think this is one of those examples where, where a word can be multifaceted because yeah. um, that's one of basically churches or denominations would, would describe what they have as a kind of church government. So they, so when they have these debates about hmm. um, what authority structure looks like within a church or the church or denomination, that's a, that they'll call that a debate over church government. And so that's, that's basically what I was sort of getting at is on some level when humans get together, um, whether it's coerced or not, if there's some kind of an organization involved, that's in a way it's a kind of government. It's not necessarily a state, but it is a kind of government. Mm-hmm. 
but well, but I also would be like it. saying like the student government is a kind of government and and I guess like I'm not disagreeing with you and your framing I just yeah. don't use that particular definition I yeah. try to be precise when using government to say that this is like an actual mechanism of force not um, sure. just like the the idea of a hierarchy um I, I, I completely follow what you're saying. I, my only, I think, pushback, though, is I think when we, um, I think it's beneficial to, to use a word like government divorced from force because it's a reminder to people that you don't necessarily have to have force in order to have structure or community mm -hmm. or, um, or, or order, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. that, 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 that's why I would still personally use the word, but I, 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 follow, I follow exactly yeah, what you're fair. saying. That's fair. Um, well, so, but I think to give an example of, of this kind of like negative versus positive silver rule, golden rule thing, um, as we're just kind of coming out of the Christmas season, um, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge came into my head, you know, Christmas Carol, because he's somebody who is thought of as this kind of terrible person, but from a libertarian perspective, I'm not, it's, it's not clear that he is, right? Because I don't, uh, I can't think of an example where he violates anyone's rights. Um, he has a, a voluntary um, agreement with his, uh, his employee, Bob Cratchit. Um, and, you know, Bob Cratchit works for him. He is okay with the wage that he gets. It helps him feed his family. He's had all these, you know, he's, he's ha he has a kid who has, a, who has these issues and obviously they, they want more money um, to uh, take care of the health issues that are coming up. But it's not as if Scrooge is, hurting Cratchit. In fact, he's helping him overall. What he gives him, uh, the money that he gives him that's part of the agreement that they have makes Bob Cratchit's life livable. He's able to have a place to, to live and food to eat. Or, you know. So I think from a negative rights perspective, Scrooge is not really doing anything wrong. But I don't think that that means from a Christian perspective that, that, that he's like a good guy. <laughs> and I mean, you know, so I think for, uh, you know, Ultimately, I think his impact on the world, we're talking about a fictional character, would be, um, would be like net positive. I mean, he's engaged in productive labor. Uh, he's housing and feeding his employee with the money that he's giving him. Um, but he doesn't actually care about people on the other hand, right? So uh, he didn't understand the Christian message of God who uh, needs nothing but still sacrifices for, the love, for his love of humanity. And, and that story didn't inspire him or make him care about his fellow humans until it did. Um, and so, um, I, I don't know. I, I was interested in hearing, hearing what you thought about that. I, I think it makes sense to think of someone like Scrooge as immoral from a Christian perspective and who will one day be judged by God for what he did. But, it's, it's also, but it, that's different than sort of saying that he's like a criminal or that he's, um, he's not meeting these sort of basic societal obligations. Does that make sense? Right. Well, I think that the societal obligation is an interesting way to frame it because like illegal or unjust or inequitable or any of those things, I just don't think matter in this conversation. Right. Because like we, assuming that he's not breaking some, he's not violating this, this general understanding of what we've developed is like, what would be like a common law. Um, then he can be a, a productive citizen or members of this society, but it doesn't make him a good one. You know, you could still be, um, you know, a terrible boss or, you know, you beat your wife or kids or something like that. Um, and, you know, outside your own home or like your small individual 
um, interactions. Maybe people don't realize you look good on paper, but, um, or maybe you're a, a closet serial killer. I don't know. I, uh, the point being like your, your Christian ethic, um, assuming you have one mandates going beyond human nature and government mm-hmm. acts to curtail it. So, um, we can't, it's 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 hard to sort of judge them as a values based thing. I think Scrooge is um, is hard to judge, except to say that he's probably not the nicest guy. His name is Scrooge, which has become um, you know synonymous with like curmudgeonly. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he's not kind to others. He doesn't put anyone before himself. Um, you know, he has very little humility, and those sorts of things. Um, I think can still make you a crappy member of society, even in a secular sense. Um, but the Christian ethic is supposed to be the, the far pole of living your best moral life. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to say, I've gotten this from the Bible project and reading sense, um, like the, the big issue, the fundamental issue with humanity and God was God's delivery of good versus evil and our rebuke and redefining of it. So we wanted as people to say, we wanted to frame the debate. We wanted to say that this was good and this is evil, that this is right and this is wrong, and that God wants to be the sole, um, the sole author of, of, of that for us. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that it really kind of, that's an important point for this conversation is like when we're structuring society and we're, even if it's just all ethereal, like esoteric stuff, like we're doing here, it's wise to remember that we're not defining a moral framework. We're defining a pragmatic one. Um, and the, the Christian life is one that should very much, I mean, even just any decent life should go well above and beyond what's legal and illegal. Um, And I think that you could say the same even now with uh, this entire corpus of laws, like you're not being a good person just by paying your taxes. You should like do things for people and try to be decent and, you know, whatever. I'd add something else, which is that even from a Christian perspective, I mean, positive duties are kind of nebulous. Like, um, how much is enough? Like when, you know, the good Samaritan who helps the man that he sees on the side of the road and he does all these things for them. At what point is he, um, has he met his, his, his obligations to God and to his neighbor? And I think that's hard to define. It's ultimately, it's a matter of conscience. And I don't think government can really enforce what really is a matter of conscience. And, you know, Scrooge has his epiphany and he goes out and starts giving money to all the people who, needed money who he wasn't willing to help before um you know did he do enough did he give enough <laughs> you know um I, you know so i think those questions are, are one of those things that you really have to take up between yourself and god you can have them in conversation with people in your church um or other people that you know you care about your family um but if but but i think to try to say that somebody needs to be there to tell you that you've not done enough is 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 a different thing i mean i think scrooge is a hero, not because he's forced to do something, um, but because he makes a decision um, to do more um, because he has been now been inspired by the the story of Christmas and he wants to be a better person. 
Now, um, you know, what that looks like, you know, what, what percentage of my income should I be giving to my local church or to other causes that I care about? Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it, that's something that I need to work out personally and, and no one should be kind of going through my checkbook and telling me that I'm not giving enough. Um, or at least if they do, uh, they, they should, they, they, they can't back that up with force. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I think it would be a scary world. Uh, I think it would be a scary world to try to enforce a Christian ethic precisely because of that. Like yeah. maybe the miserly it's old man. Enforce it. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. The miserly old man may be serving his own, his own purpose towards, um, you know, some ultimate plan. Uh, but even getting into that language is, you know, tricky. Yeah. I, I just think like, I have so little interest in dictating my neighbor's life. I have so little interest yeah. in, in making value judgments about people. Um, and you have to really earn it for me. Um, so I, I think the, the flip side of that is a lot of people are quick to make snap judgments about people's, you know, values. And um, they are willing to legislate that because they're so terrified of, uh, sort of like the boogeyman that they've developed behind every person's, you know, um, face mask now. Uh, it's, yeah, it's an interesting conversation and it's one maybe we should do a, a, a small project on to, to put into words. Um, as we were talking, I was thinking again, like what, what is going to be our, um, our step in the next, like, how are we going to meld our minds and make something productive? Um, my buddy in the chat here, Maybe he can give us some uh, some recommendations, but I I, I do want to uh, I do want to steer this because it's it's really good for me too. I get so wrapped up in like the philosophical, um, political stuff and and reading like the topical news and um, you know histories that interest me and um, I I forget to to give I think proper attention to my faith. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny, this, this woman had, uh, hit me up in the direct messages, uh, and I really appreciate it. She, um, she had said that she was interested to hear what a Christian anarchist actually is and had told me that she's basically like, a um, the antithesis of that. She, um, is of the left broadly. And, and I believe she said she was an atheist, but the point being, um, she like reached out and wanted to have like a a civil conversation and she was very kind. And as I was talking to her, I was thinking like, she's asking a, a really basic question about something that I think is fundamental to who I am and that I don't give an impression of whatsoever on my page, which is purposeful to some degree. Like I, I don't want to be uh, evangelizing. I don't think that that's my strength and I don't, I don't want to wade into it, but I, I do put it in my bio and it is part of who I am or a uh, fundamental yeah. part of who I am. Um, and so it's an interesting thing to kind of like wrestle with. Um, and I think I should be doing more of it publicly. Well, we'll maybe we'll meet in the middle because when I started Cantus Firmus, I didn't talk about politics at all because, my, you know, my, my primary interest is theology. Uh, but once I wrote Fight the Powers and it was talking about um, the relationship in, at least how scripture defines the relationship between spiritual forces and, um, you know, political forces, um, that sort of opened up that door for me to talk a little bit more about that as it seems relevant, but. Yeah. But yeah, maybe maybe we'll meet in the middle. I, I know. I think you're. The time is probably going to be running out pretty soon. Um, do you want to? Um, you want to conclude with anything? Um, I'm still working on my um, my ebook that is 
seemingly never done. Scott Horton says that he's going to be done with his book um, here in January. That's his plan. And so I'm hoping to have my manuscript to him by February. Um, I don't know that I'm going to meet that deadline. Um, And then when I'm done with that, I'm hoping to start, um, start doing a little bit more either writing or um, I'm going to, I'm starting to work on a a small e-commerce business too. So I'm, I I don't have much to plug except to say that, um, you know, I'm hoping to grow this page organically as I've been doing. And um, maybe I'll have like an actual work of scholarship to give out one day. Well, let me know as you're working on the book. So now, does this book have a publisher at this point? You kind of cut out on me. Um, the, the, the book you're working on from about your kind of experience and perspective, or is that something you're still doing, doing independently? So I have a um, verbal agreement with the Libertarian Institute and Scott Horton. Um, and it initially, the plan was that I would be developing the most comprehensive um click through timeline of the war in Iraq, the lead up to the war in Iraq and all the relevant information that goes into how we got there. Um, Because I think when people talk foreign policy, they really take for granted that, you know, we, Hey, we were relied into Iraq. Okay. Like where's the receipts for that? Um, I've got them all, but at the same time um, it's become like, I've read, I've read literally hundreds, if not more hours of like primary source documents and and articles of the time trying to put this together. And it's become so much more than I intended it to be. I have like 300 pages on a word doc right now, all scattered together. And there's so many like fascinating characters that I want to include, but aren't like super relevant. And I think like if, you know, like to include somebody like Carl Rove, like he's probably pretty fundamental actually to the launching of the war, but how do you give, how do you give him the proper page space when he doesn't have the headlines attached to him? And like a lot of what is talked about with him is speculative. Um, I don't want to, I don't want it to be a, a political thing at all. I really want it to be a sterile, uh, as sterile as possible um, ex- explanation of how we got to where we are. And I've become further motivated by a book I just finished called Human Smoke by Nicholson Baker, um, which is exactly that sort of premise for World War II you became aware of relatively recently it's fascinating um so yeah i don't know it's a tough project yeah well good luck on it man i can't wait to see what you what you finish the finished product yeah what are you working on right now nothing right now i just finished a book called unhitched um why jesus can't be divorced from the old testament oh i only interviewed you for that too i did finish it oh yeah no problem yeah, uh, uh, I uh, mentioned my book, Fight the Powers, which is more relevant to what we've talked about here. Um, apart from that, I'm, I'm trying to write more articles, um, and I'm trying to submit them to different places as well to try to kind of um, just kind of reach out my tendrils into different places. And um, mm. But, yeah, uh, other than that, nothing really, man. Just uh, raising – just uh, got an, now an 8-year-old and a newborn, and so just trying to keep up with all that and – uh, be a good husband and not take too much time to work on my personal projects away from uh, my family. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, uh, still, still finding time to do it here and there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking time to to do this with me today. And I, um, I hope, 
I hope we can do this a little bit more regularly. I know we always say that, but um, yeah. Well, we, 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 I know we don't vibes. do it. We don't do it like weekly or anything, but we've done it a few times. So, uh, and I always enjoy it and yeah. I missed you. And yeah, so that's sure. why I wanted to talk to you. So <laughs> it's good to talk to you, man. Yeah. I missed you too. It has been. All right. Well, um, I appreciate everyone that stuck around. We've had four watchers more or less uh, throughout this, including um, James, who I've interacted with quite a bit. Um, and uh, hopefully we get some, some good engagement on this and uh, we can get some ideas brewing for the next one. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you all. Later, guys. Peace.